From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. I'm Don Jeffries. I am filling in for Richard. And next Sunday, we will have another guest host, Ali C. Aditan, who will be filling in. We'll be talking to Jonathan Kahn, a New York Times bestselling author, discuss his book, Harbinger 2, The Return. Again, I'm Don Jeffries, and you can find me. I'm, I'm the author of many, many uh, best-selling books, Hidden History, Survival of the Richest, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963. You can find me at donaldjeffries.news, donaldjeffries.media. And uh, I've been on Richard's show many times, and he's been on my show. Great friend. Uh, admire his work very much. Very honored to be on the show. Our second guest tonight is uh, Gino Minari, who is, uh, it looks like he's, you know, one of the, almost the founder of Las Vegas. I guess he moved there in 1964. His resume is incredibly impressive. He started Houdini Publishing in 1992, still currently doing it. He's a publisher and writer of literally hundreds of publications uh, covering varied subjects. We're going to talk about his book on uh, Las, uh, Las Vegas today. He uh, collaborated on many scripts for some many well-known movies like The Rain Man, Indecent Proposal. So, Gino Minari, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Don, and thanks for asking me to come on. It's a pleasure indeed. Oh, well, it's just fascinating. I mean, you know, this world is amazing to me. I mean, geez, you've led such an exciting life. I mean, if you go past the casinos now, are you, are you like somebody that, you know, works in a restaurant, they never eat there? Do you just kind of ignore that because it's old hat to you? Well, you know, that's always the old story. You know, people think that if you live here, you live in one of the hotels. You know, actually, I think I haven't been in some of the new ones. I don't even know what the new wind looks like on the inside. I should go over there. But when I moved here, just right out of high school, the same week I graduated, I went to the dunes and different hotels and watched the poker rooms. My eyes opened up, and I couldn't believe what I saw. So um, I went to UNLV, and I got a job in the nighttime working as a busboy at the Sahara Hotel. And I worked with all the dealers there that told me stories. Every 20 minutes, the dealers would change and come in and have coffee. They worked 40 minutes on, 20 minutes off. And I got to know all these guys and heard all these stories. I just was fascinated. I just couldn't stop. I wanted more and more. That's part of how this all started. And so I was working as a busboy. I'm making a little money, and I'd get off at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I'd go have a little breakfast, and I'd, I took flying lessons. So a uh, little place where I took flying lessons, that's where I met one of the owners of the Dunes Hotel, who uh, eventually gave me a job when I was 22 years old. So that's how it started. I went to work at the Dunes Hotel like in 1968. And I just couldn't wait to get to work. It was the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I went to work an hour early just to be there. So all these things, I decided to, you know, the place was such a great place. The owners were great guys. You know, there was eight management teams, you know, when the dunes started in 1955 and, of course, closed in 1993. But I was there in the in the middle of it with the, the most successful management team, which was Sid Wyman, George Duckworth, Charlie Rich, Howie Engel, Butch Goldstein, and a couple of other guys. It was just absolutely wonderful. These guys, you know, they didn't have smartphones. You know, they did things just out of their out of their brain, out of their pocket. You know, and they made the place successful. The best of everything, the best gambling, the most exciting thing in the world. And what turned the dunes around, being that it was a little bit outside of town in those days, you got to remember the dunes now is where the Bellagio sits. So if all you people are been to Las Vegas, you know where the Bellagio is. That's the famous Dunes Hotel. and That was where the Dunes was. And it started off with 200 rooms, then it grew to, you know, like the 1,200 rooms. And um, 
the key thing that made that place successful was bringing and buying business, plus filling their rooms up. So the more business that they had, the more business that they had, uh, you know, the more the more gambling they had. And these junkets would come in from uh, New York, it started with, and they'd come in on a Thursday, leave on a Sunday, and every other week New York would show up, and then in between that one it'd be, you'd have Detroit, and Chicago, and so forth, and so on. And also, you know, the Dunes had an 18-hole championship golf course. That was another thing. And so it was a great, great place to work. I couldn't wait to get to work. I started there as a blackjack dealer. I heard you say that when the show started. But I wound up uh, as a Baccarat uh, executive uh, when I last left the Dunes. And, and that was, at that time, one of the most prestigious jobs to even get in the casino. And, um, and uh, you know, I, 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 I was... I was working downtown, breaking in to learn the games, and you have to do that in order to uh, to basically be able to work in a first class place. So I spent about a year downtown, a year and a half, you know, dealing blackjack, roulette, and a little bit of craps. And uh, I went out to the Flamingo and tried to get an audition. They call it like a tryout. And the guy, I, I could deal fairly well. He said, "You're not ready," and I thought I was, but I, I think he just didn't want to hire me. I was get too many people wanted jobs. I walked outside, I saw the Dunes Hotel, and I, a light went on in my head. I said, you know, George Duckworth, I met him at the airport when I was learning to fly. I'm going to go over there and see if I can get a job. I get an audition. I walked across the street. I got on the table. He was there. He said, get on the table and deal. I dealt, and he hired me on the spot. And uh, that was the start of it, 1968. And then at home, I wanted to learn Baccarat. So I, we built a table, me and a friend of mine, Ray Madrano and uh, who was wound up to be a successful employee at Caesar's Palace, the Baccarat department. Uh, we learned Baccarat, and we learned it, you know, just a little bit at home. So, uh, you know, about six months of dealing blackjack in the dunes, I got the nerve to walk up to Mr. Duckworth. You know, you never bothered these guys when they had, were in a bad mood. You could tell they were in a good mood or in a bad mood. You knew, you know, when to t- talk to them. Uh, it was not like, uh, you know, you get an appointment. You just took your shot. I walked up to him and I said, Mr. Duckworth, I said, um, you know, I'm, I'm practicing Baccarat at home, but I would like to go over on the table and work for free if I could, just to try to learn the game. He says, buy yourself two tuxedos, you're starting tomorrow night. And he left me hanging there and he walked away. And I tried to tell him, oh, wait a minute, I don't know the game. He didn't make a difference. They stuck me right on the game, and that was the start of the whole thing. So. Baptism by fire, boy. Well, I, I, and I just want to make sure because I, I, I neglected to, to give out the title of your book because all your your entire fascinating career can be found in a very large book you wrote called Las Vegas, Las Vegas's Dunes Hotel, Casino, and Country Club: The Mob, The Connections, and the Stories by Correct. Gino Monari. So, and it's uh, you know you, you're it's just a fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you, you've you've led a really, really interesting life. I, I imagine you know that. I mean, mo- most people do not have this uh, <laughs> this kind of background, but you sound like you're really appreciative. And you you started out at the very bottom, I guess. You know, in 1964 or whatever, it was still possible in America. I don't think it is possible to do that now to start, you know, the mailroom level and rise up to being some kind of an executive or whatever you wound up at. But uh, just kind of an American success story. Well, you know, I really, you know, I always felt myself I had to do better and, 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 and do, a little, do a little more than just the average guy to be successful. I just I wanted to be the best at what I did. And, uh, you know, I thought I was going to go into aviation, actually. 
but uh, my eyes weren't good enough, and so I couldn't get a job with the airlines. And so uh, there, I, there, there I am in the Baccarat pit. And, uh, and, and how this whole thing, you know, I don't think I was even aware at the time of the strength of the so-called mob, the outfit, the syndicate. You know, that wasn't what the dunes was to me. It was like, hey, I'm just going to go to work and make some money and have a good time. And I couldn't wait to get there. So one day, the guy, one of the floor men at the dunes of the day shift, was a guy from New York. His name was Taglia Lalatella. And he was a guy with uh, them to these kind of an accent. And he was what he was. And I didn't know much about him at the time other than he, he was a decent guy and he had a lot of experience. And uh, uh, was in Baccarat in the, in the old days and at the Sands. And he also, you know, dealt paper craps. That means dealing with paper means with cash, not with chips. And so one day when they, they stuck me over in the pit on the day shift, he was the boss. And um, as I got off, you know, he got to know me a little bit. And a couple of months, I'm getting off the table after I was calling the hand in Baccarat, like, like the stick man, you sort of call it, where you, you know, call the cards. And uh, as I walked around to get on the other side of the table to work another 20 minutes, he says, come here a second. Would you please read this memo to me? My, my eyes are bothering me. And uh, uh, so, you know, I looked at it, and uh, I kind of explained it to him. And um, he said, thank you. And ever since that day, you know, I didn't embarrass him. I, I felt that maybe he wasn't the best um, learned reader in the world, you know. And there's a couple of words that he didn't maybe know, but I didn't embarrass him, and I, I helped him. And from that day forward, he took me under his wing and showed me, uh, you know, about this game and how to deal it and what to do. And, you know, and so forth and so on. And, uh, and then one day he said something to me. He's, you know, he was very, very friendly with me and uh, invited me to his house. His, his wife used to cook Italian food. We'd go out to eat. You know, one day he said to me, and he points to himself, and he says, you know, Gino, he says, I can never be fired from this hotel. And I looked at him like, What's, what do you mean? You know, I didn't get it. He said, if my man could walk through here, he'd pay $50,000. And all of a sudden, a, a, a light went on in my head. And uh, I figured it out that he was pretty connected to somebody. And uh, so that's what I started looking at. Every day I saw something new and another light went on. I saw another uh, situation where, well, what are those guys doing? What are they doing? And, well, what about that guy? And so forth. And then you'd, you'd have unusual customers that bet enormous amounts of money. you say, where did they get this money? And uh, anyway, it was, it was like, a, like a story, like watching a movie every single day. Well, I guess so. And, and you're young when you start, obviously. And you, this is uh, obviously an exciting world to you. You're giddy. You talk in the book about Wally Cox. So I, I loved Wally Cox. You know, and his, his, his kind of odd or, you know, odd couple friendship with Marlon Brando. But, and I guess he had a very short tenure there in the Dunes. But what, what were some of the big celebrities that came to the Dunes and, and, and performed there? And then did you get to meet any of them? Well, Wally Cox landed four, uh, lasted four days, by the way. Right. So, you know, yeah, right. and, and Marlon Brando was in the audience screaming. Now, and I wasn't yeah. there then. This was back when they first opened. Uh, but okay. the Dunes, then the Dunes uh, was basically taken over after Peepers by the Sands Hotel, and Sinatra worked there. And uh, yeah. and then they, they didn't last too long. And then finally, um, uh, it was put together by a couple of, there was landlords and there was operators. And Riddle and a couple of other guys, Major Riddle, 
uh, that was his name, Major Riddle, not a not an officer, but that was his name, um, who was a very close friend of Hoffa, and you know, and had a trucking business, uh, took it over, and then they they started these uh, the Minsky Follies. They brought Minsky in, and they had Abbott, Costello, and all kinds of guest stars. But through the course of the Dunes, the years of the Dunes, they had a gigantic floor show. And then they had a small lounge show called Viva La Girls. It was a French-style review. And in the main showroom, Casino di Paris, a cast of 100. So it was not... Occasionally, they'd have a guest star that would sing in the show, like Lynn Renan and Rovan and, you know, and other people. But it wasn't like... Uh, like the Sands Hotel, where they had one headliner, you know, like right. Frank Sinatra. It was just a different operation. Uh, so so it, it worked, though. It worked for the Dunes. It, it brought people. They could price it right. They had it worked out. They had the best food. They had the Sultan's Table Restaurant, the most beautiful place you ever saw in your life. One, one night we were on the, in the Baccarat pit, and John Wayne was walking through the casino. And one of the other floor men... It's kind of gutsy. I'll never forget him, Attilio Panaccio. And that night, Lenny Stelly was with me and Dick Brewer. And, and, and I, I think uh, Attilio Panaccio cut me, called him. He said, hey, hey, Duke, say hello to the boys. And, and, and just in the style of John Wayne, he kind of walks kind of like he does in the movies. And he goes, hiya, fellas. Everybody gave him a round of applause. It was, like, wonderful. And, of course, and of course one of the most interesting things, one of the owners of the Dunes Hotel, uh, Sid, uh, Sid Wyman and Cupy Rich. Cupy Rich was his partner. His real name was Charles Rich. I don't mean to use that in an inappropriate manner, but that was his nickname as a kid. But no one ever called him Cupy. Cupy had a little boxing gym in, in, in St. Louis, and where Sid Wyman and him had an absolutely fantastic bookmaking operation. Now, this is leading somewhere, so I want to just give you this. And so they actually used the the Western Union agents to accept bets for them all over the country and send them to them in St. Louis. And they paid the agents a commission for getting the business. They were they did some big business. Like, you know, they'd gross seven, eight million dollars a year in in nineteen forty nine and fifty. That's like incredible. And uh, so in St. Louis, Charles Rich met Terry Grant. Met him at a, at, a, at a sports function or something, and they became the best of friends. And two opposites: a little guy about five foot two, and Terry Grant about you know, dashing movie star. He used to come to the Dunes all the time, and uh, was was a fabulous guy. Uh, a fabulous guy. Uh, people would recognize him completely. You know, you know, like go crazy. They'd scream. You know, one time at the cage, a lady was in front of him. And he was right behind her, and he had his glasses on, and he wanted to be not noticed. And she got done with her business. She turned around real fast, and she dropped her purse. And he bent down to pick up the contents. And the lady looked up to see who it was, and she almost fainted. She screamed, Gary Grant! Oh, my God. But he was a nice guy. He was a fabulous guy. Fabulous guy. Incredible actor. Incredible personality. So, so, you, so this was So you got to... You got to at least see these people. Did you ever get to interact with any of these uh, celebrities that, that were walking through the casino or performing there? Well, you know, you knew your, you kept your spot. I mean, you, know, you didn't uh, go over your yeah, spot. Yeah, you didn't over I mean, but, right. The bosses were the bosses. That was their business, you know. Uh, but uh, one of the bosses that hired me, Mr. Duckworth, uh, he had an English wife, Kim Darvis. That was her name. 
uh, and she was a beautiful lady. She's passed away. I'm so sorry to hear about that. But, you know, one day, uh, they, Cary Grant, George Duckworth, the casino director, and his wife were just leaving the Sultan's table. And he said that Cary Grant leaned over to George's ear and he says, does your wife have a sister? And, you know, basically, mm-hmm. you know, he thought she was just absolutely fabulous. You know, as mm-hmm. far as interacting with him, I would say no. We, we, we kept our, our business. We minded our business. We, you know, we were, in other words, when we were asked to talk, we talked. We just didn't take over like, I would have to say it's a little different today. Today, the people would act like they're their best friends, and that's not the way it really is. You know, you, you respected their privacy, and uh, you left them alone, you know. Except, well, do you, know, do you like, still, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I said, do you still live in Las Vegas? Do you, do you go to, do you do. go to any of the casinos now? I do occasionally. You know, once in a while I like to play poker, uh, mm-hmm. or some friends in town we go out to eat i might well since the covid thing of course not recently but we go out and we maybe we play blackjack a little bit or just have some fun but uh you know it, it's always fun to see the gambling see how the new games are running and, and see how they run things and of course you know the way i look at things and the way things are run today it's two different points of view two different points of view you know the, the bosses at the dunes hotel they were the contact of the players they were the handshakers. They were the guys that came up to you and basically, you know, touched your belly, basically, you know. And they were the ones that took care of you. And they had a following. And they were loyal. Those customers were loyal to them. Today, you know, I don't think, uh, and I'm not trying to belittle anybody, but I don't think the executives of the hotels even want to even meet a customer unless he's the best customer in the house, you know. It's just a different business, too. It's a different business. Yeah, well, obviously things. I mean, how? I mean, I know in, in, in our, I mean, I live on the East Coast, and we used to go to Atlantic City quite a bit. And uh, Atlantic City, boy, I mean, it's, they were devastated several years ago when they legalized. Uh, they started put well. They put some casinos around here, very uh, close to us in Maryland and uh, parts of Virginia, and uh, you in Philadelphia. Foxwoods. Pardon me. Yeah. Foxwood. Yeah. So so. Yeah. So I mean, how has has uh, I mean, I guess Las Vegas doesn't have the same concerns, but Atlantic City is really uh, doing poorly now compared to what they were because of the competition, aren't they? It's changed. Things have changed there. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it, it, there is a lot of competition, and um, you know, but Las Vegas is Las Vegas. People yeah. love Las Vegas. I don't know what it is. They love the idea of the mob used to run it. They love <laughs> the fabulous hotels. But you know, if you go to a and I hate to say this, but you go to another location that has game, gambling. Uh, you know, I mean, Reno's kind of nice, but you go to other places in California or, or wherever, it's just not the same. It, it just doesn't have the excitement. You know, once you leave the casino, where are you going to go? To, a, like, the Denny's restaurant? There's nothing else going on, you know? So uh, I just think there's no replacement of Las Vegas. It's the excitement. It's the entertainment capital of the world. And, and I think that that's... That's the key to it. Entertainment, reasonable food, and inexpensive rooms. You know, I didn't only work at the, the Dunes. I worked at other places. And we were, I worked at a place called the Imperial Palace, which is now the Link, which is across the street from Caesars. Uh, can, can you hold that, hold that, hold that thought, Gino? I Conspiracy will. Show with Richard Searitt. I'm Don Jeffries. We'll continue after these words. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. I'm Don Jeffries, again filling in for the incomparable Richard Sirrett, who is in Greece. Until you were so rudely interrupted by the commercial, Gino, you were, you were talking about something. Please uh, take up where you left off. Well, I was going to say, you know, with Las Vegas, the, when someone enters the city in the airplane, by airplane or even by car, you come up down the pass from Los Angeles or from Reno, or in the airplane, you see all these lights. You see, you see 50 square miles of lights, basically. And in those lights are all these casinos. You know, you have so many options. You have every kind of casino you want, every kind of a gambling operation you want. You have themed ones, you have non-themed ones, you have, you know, spa-type places to, like, uh, waterwork-type places. So it's, it's really a lot of choices you can make as a t- tourist. But what I was going to say is, you know, the theory that I that we had at the Imperial Palace was, you know, fill the rooms and get bodies. And, you know, today, some of the hotels are getting a little carried away with their prices. So say you have to pay 250 for a room, and you've got a $1,000 budget. I'm just going to give you an example. So if you're here for two days, that's $500 went to the room, and you had a couple hundred dollars to eat. So that's $700. You only got 300 left to gamble for two days and, say, play blackjack. Wouldn't it be better if you charge less for the rooms, a little bit less right. for the food, and have more money to play, and if you could keep them in your place, they'd lose all the money right. back there anyway, and they'd have fun doing it. And that's, I think, a, a situation that has to be looked at. If I had a place, uh, I would certainly run it like we did in the old days. Good entertainment, clean rooms, and not cheap food, but good, inexpensive, subsidized food. Give them a bargain. Give people a bargain. They love that. Absolutely. You want them to spend the money. I know. I think Las Vegas used to run the same way as Atlantic City. You know, we. we I don't think I ever paid for a room in Atlantic City. We always got free rooms, and uh, they used to have. Uh, I, and I think a lot wasn't Las Vegas famous for their free buffets at one time, or you you could get coupons out of a magazine or something, or you you know get credits from the casino because they, they want you spending your money. They want you putting the the money in the you know on gambling. So they'll, they'll, you know, give you a free meal and a free room, won't they? Exactly. They have a, a rating system, basically. You know, there's so many hands dealt an hour. And they can calculate how much the theoretical, theoretical win should be for the casino by how much you're betting. You know, $25 right. a hand. You know, in Baccarat, there's, say, 80 hands times the casino percentage. They know they're going to make X dollars from you. So, yeah, they can then, if you are a real player, you deserve complimentaries. If you're not a player, you shouldn't get complimentaries other than free drinks maybe occasionally. And they have ways, they have tracking systems that are pretty uh, fluent, basically. I mean, pretty, pretty exotic, actually. And they can tell you exactly what, what you did, almost. And that's what they use. They use those things to give you credits. They give you gifts and cash. Well, I designed a casino club for the San Remo Hotel, which is now Hooters, and I called it the Money Club. Instead of giving jackets, you know, hats and cups away, I gave them points, which were cash, converted to cash. You could buy uh, jackets and caps with that money, but I, I figured that if you give them back to the cash, they're going to come back to you and gamble with it. And that was some of the right. ideas. So, you know, some of the best marketing tools, you know, from the old days could be turned around a little bit and reused, and people would love them. Sure. I mean, so now let's let's talk a little bit about the the mob and uh, what you saw there. And I, 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 I'm sure, you know, maybe as you talked about the one guy, you pretty much knew what he was. 
But I mean, how how overt was the influence in Las Vegas of the mob, or, did, or was it kind of in the background, and you just assumed something was there, but you didn't really see, you know, blatant indications of it? Well, yeah, you, you, you know, you knew about it, but you didn't really inquire too much because it was none of your business. But there was instances when I was working at the Dunes where it couldn't be avoided, where certain people would come in who weren't supposed to be there, and uh, the Dunes got in trouble. For one was Nick Savella, who was from Kansas City. Uh, he was a notorious mobster, and uh, the Dunes got fined for him. And he got also was put on the, uh, the Nevada blacklist where he couldn't come in any Nevada gaming property. Uh, and then a couple of other guys uh, were friends of, for instance, uh, in where I worked, were friends with some of the top guys from St. Louis. And, uh, you know, we couldn't have avoid not seeing them and talking to them and dealing with them at the Baccarat table. Uh, nice to us, treated us like gentlemen. Uh, but uh, the Dunes basically was the, I, I would say, let me put it to you this way. Hoffa was one of the first uh, funders to the Dunes Hotel through Jake Gottlieb. And Hoffa and his union, you know, basically, you know, had all kinds of uh, union representatives in various cities, and they had, they made loans to various casinos, and of course there was undoubtedly kickbacks in some of the situations. And some of those situations, you know, um, those kickbacks were, in, were involved with, with mobsters. Uh, for instance, uh, Mo Dalitz of the Desert Inn, uh, who was yeah. a friend of Hoffa, and uh, he, Mo Dalitz is one of the most respected guys in Las Vegas, but a big operator, ran the Desert Inn Hotel and the Stardust Hotel. He and, had some uh, influence in Hollywood. Did, didn't Mo Dalitz go back to Hollywood, too? Uh, not, not, not so much him, no. Uh, okay, he, he was from okay, Detroit. He was from Detroit. Uh, okay. and, uh, in, in any event, uh, he built a place called La Costa. La Costa was down there by San Diego and it was funded by the Teamsters. And it was basically a hangout for, uh, for the public as well as all the mobsters. And, uh, you know, uh, so Alan Dorfman, who was Hoffa's handpicked, handpicked executor of the of the fund uh was who did time for a kickback you know was a regular customer at the dunes in, in some ways uh his girlfriend was a cocktail waitress there and i'll never forget one night you know we were making plenty of money off of a customer uh, tips wise and the, the cocktail waitress was making nothing because he wasn't drinking so you know we made maybe three four thousand off of the guy and you know so i said let's give the cocktail waitress the next bet for the dealers. And so we put her up for, well, he put her up for $100. She won the bet, and I gave it to her, and she was so excited. You know, she gave me a kiss on the cheek. And uh, later, one of the other bosses says, you know who that is, don't you? That's Alan Dorfman's girlfriend. I went, oh. <laughs> so, you know, he was a guy He was a guy that was assassinated in Chicago. I don't know if you know that. And uh, 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 Yeah, boy. So, you know, we, we had a lot of interesting things. And we had guys, uh, you know, that were... We, 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 had a, we had a host at the Dunes. His name was uh, High Goldbaum. And High Goldbaum was a diminutive fella dressed to the hilt. And he used to wear a cologne called White Shoulders. Now, White Shoulders is a woman's perfume. But in the 30s, men used to wear it. 
And so, you know, you, you, well, you know, when you sat with, I used to sit with him at dinner every night, and he'd, you know, he'd tell me stories. And he, and he told me a story where he was out here, he came with Bugsy Siegel to work the Flamingo, and he ran the, the commission uh, sports book inside the place where they took bets from all over the country, all over the country. And if you had a bet you wanted to lay off, you know, you paid a, a commission fee besides the bet. And uh, if, if you won the bet, you got paid. If you lost the bet, you lost the, the bet and the commission. And he told me, you know, that uh, his phone bill was about twelve to $15,000 a month because they had phones that went everywhere all over the country. And the guy from the phone company was called Central Telephone, would come out and, you know, and collect the money in person. He'd bring the bill out to High and, and say, yeah, Hi, here's the bill, and High would pay him. And so one day this, this telephone guy says to High Goldbaum, he says, Hi, um, uh, you know, you can buy the company for maybe $50,000. It's rumored for sale. He says, I don't want any of that. And that was the end of that. He turned down buying the phone company, you know, for like 50000 but his phone bill was fifteen to twenty thousand a month. And he was he was quite a bookmaker. He was Bugsy Siegel's personal friend, and he was brought to the Flamingo, and then he came to work at the Dunes uh, years later. Um, and, uh, and then you know there was uh, uh, a lot of s- strange things and conspiracy things even came up for a bit. Uh, but I had a couple bosses I worked for uh, in the in the Baccarat pit who got in trouble for bookmaking. They had an illegal bookmaking operation in the Dunes Hotel and in one of the apartments. And, uh, and uh, you know, they were, they were being watched, and somebody informed on them, and they got arrested. And uh, a group of five, six guys were indicted for a bookmaking operation, and they confiscated a, a, a locked cash box in the casino cage from Sidney Wyman, and they got $800,000 out of that box. Uh, the FBI, you know, confiscated. And uh, so two of the guys, you know, uh, went to jail. They went to the county farm temporarily because they were in contempt of court for not talking. They wouldn't, they wouldn't testify. Believe, you know, we, we had a policy in the dunes at the time where the bosses were in with a tip, and if you got fired, you were in for a year till you got, or until you got a job. So it was my job to take the tips to the jail. <laughs> That sounds crazy, but I actually took the tips, we called them tokes, to the jail. And uh, I gave them their tips in jail. And, uh, you know, uh, I, this was like a kind of like an honor farm out in the uh, east side of Las Vegas. And the conditions were pretty bad. I mean, the furniture was terrible. And so Mr. Mr. Wyman, Sidney Wyman at the Dunes Hotel, bought the entire jail furniture so those guys could be comfortable for a while. And uh, I did that for until they got out of jail. That was that was quite a quite a trip. Every day, you know, every once a week, I'd go out there and visit them. Uh, so not the normal thing as person supposed to do, but that's what I did. Absolutely. Well, this is music again. We'll be right back after these words. You're listening to Conspiracy Show with Richard Seary. From somewhere deep inside the Great White North. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. I am not Richard Serrett. I am Don Jeffries filling in for Richard tonight. He will return. We're talking to Gina Minari, and 
Uh, Gino, I have to uh, ask you about you know my, uh, my, my my I'm the conspiracy world. That's my favorite uh, part of the world. It's what I write about more than anything else. And the JFK assassination is my wheelhouse issue. I go way back to the mid '70s when I was a teenage volunteer working with Mark Lane's group, Citizens Committee of Inquiry. Uh, so oh, wow. this has been a part. Yeah, this has been a part a of my life forever. A lot of respect yeah. for Mark Lane. Oh, he was my hero, my men- mentor, my hero. But, uh, you know, I became a civil libertarian because of him. There aren't too many of us left these days. But uh, So ha- how did you get involved? Tell us about working with my good friend, John Barber. This was this gratifying friendship I've had. I like just a wonderful guy. Still admire him. So 88 years old and has the energy of a teenager. Uh, these, this fantastic documentary, The Second Assassination of President uh, – The American Meeting and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. How did you come to be involved with that? Talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, I met John, and uh, uh, he wanted to do this project, and basically I, I helped him do the project. And uh, we did a lot of the editing, and we did a lot of the writing, and we put it together. And at the time, my theory was, like everyone else's, you know, the CIA did it, and, and uh, Garrison, you know, Garrison was, was partially right. But, you know, over the years, I've changed my, my thinking entirely, completely, and I've gone the other way. Uh, my theory was, from the information that I came across, and I, and I don't have all the answers here, but my theory is that uh, I think it was, uh, that was the mob with some other people, and they had some help. And the reason I tell you that is because I didn't want to write this last chapter in one of the chapters of my book, and I don't know if you read this yet, but um, there, there were guys in the Baccarat pit that actually knew uh, Jack Ruby. They didn't like him. I mean, they didn't take nothing of him. Um, uh, I worked with a guy by the name of Joe Slayton, Erwin Gordon, Dave Goldberg. They knew Jack Ruby, and John Stone, who was one of the biggest bookmakers a friend of mine since I was a young teenager. Uh, His daughter wound up becoming the sports book manager of the Stardust Hotel for Lefty Rosenthal. And she lived in the same building as Jack Ruby did in Dallas at one time. And uh, there was a guy that came into the dunes quite often. His name was R.D. Matthews. He was frightening. He had one patch over one of his eyes and he used to pick up the diminutive high goal bomb and they would joke and, you know, High would act like he's choking his neck. He'd pick him up like a little doll and lift him off the ground about two feet. And uh, here was a guy you didn't fool with. And he worked for Benny Binion at the time at the Horseshoe Club, uh, legendary Benny Binion. But, but the funny part is when Ruby was arrested, uh, they found R.D. Matthews' card in his wallet. And I believe the night before the uh, – I'd have to look at my notes here. This, I got so much stuff in this book. And I'm missing, missing so many things. But there was a phone call uh, revealed, a 13-minute phone call from Ruby's Carousel Club in Dallas to Matthew's ex-wife in Shreveport, Louisiana. That was October 3rd, 1963. And it was, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. But all of a sudden, these kind of these, these little clues came up. And, uh, and I started realizing there was uh, Walt Brown, a former FBI agent, uh, who was a lead investigator at one time, uh, he visited uh, the weapons dealer in Oklahoma where R.D. Matthews had the tools of his trade specially made. And uh, it was kind of a, I mean, R.D. Matthews was a guy that was uh, 
was 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 something else. You'd have to read the book to realize there's so so much more about him. But he was actually questioned before the committee, uh, one of the committees, and he took the ex federal judge who was uh, impeached, Harry Claiborne, as his as his lawyer. And uh, so, so anyway, I always had this idea, you know, uh, about about things and and I, things I read and so forth and so on and. And then one day, and of course, you know, uh, there was a lot of sources asserted that Hoppe had something to do with the assassination of JFK. Uh, Frank Regano reported that, uh, and uh, that was one thing. And then uh, there was also uh, Edward Parton, who was an uh, associate of Hoppe. Uh, he was approached by Hoppe to kill RFK. And uh, the talented researcher and writer Dan Moldea, published The Hopper Wars, uh, the first book to theorize that Hoppe recruited, recruited mobsters Marcello and Trepicante to arrange President Kennedy's assassination. Dan Moldeo, Dan Moldea doesn't miss dotting his I's or crossing his T's. He's thorough. And then one day, this is really crazy, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on a patio after, afternoon in a little restaurant, and I'm writing stuff, and this guy I've known for a good 25 years just happened to be leaving, and he, he stopped to say hello to me. He said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just writing this book. He said, what are you writing the book about? And I said, oh, I'm writing this chapter about Ruby and Kennedy and stuff like that. He said, we got to get together. i got to talk to you sometime. So I said, well, how about now? And he sat down and started telling me how he was a – he was a Marine, ex-Marine, of course. And now let me explain to you what he did. He spent his last uh, 35 years, I think, working at the Desert Inn Hotel, you know, just a little bit after they opened until they closed. And that was owned by Dalitz. And so uh, he worked there as, as a wheel dealer, as a roulette wheel dealer, and then he moved up into management. But he said, you know, uh, I got out of the Marines and I was a sniper, and, uh, uh, and we worked in this two-man crews, I think he told me about. There was 50 of them. And they went around the world and did work for a secret part of our government. Hold that thought, Gino, because we have to go to commercial break again. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Guest host, Don Jeffries. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Seven. And welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. I'm Don Jeffries, filling in for Richard Serrett, who will return. Gino, go ahead. Before you were interrupted, you were talking about Jack Ruby and his interesting connections. Yeah, so this fellow that I knew got out of the Marines like in like 1949. He was, a, he was basically a, a, a sharpshooter and part of a special squad that worked for a general called Chesty Puller. And after that, he, you know, he, did, he went to work down in Alabama, and he got in trouble in North Carolina, and then he finally got, uh, I guess, for doing some moonshine, and he finally uh, ran into a guy in Phoenix City, Alabama, and they put him to work in, in, in a casino there. And uh, he learned the games, learned the 21 game, learned how to deal the, the roulette wheel, we call the wheel, and craps. And, uh, you know, after being there a while, uh, you know, in Las Vegas, they didn't have dealing schools in those days. You know, either you worked in a, in a legal casino somewhere, you learned the game that way, or a friend taught you, but Mo Dale at the at the uh, Desert Inn, I think it was 1953 or so, uh, could have been 54. 
needed a, a couple of wheel dealers. So he called his friend in Phoenix City, Alabama, uh, who ran a casino, and he says, you know, he's looking for a dealer. Do you have anybody that you can recommend and send out here? We need some dealers. And he says, yeah, we got a guy. I got a good guy, and he's can handle a wheel good. He's a perfect guy for you. And he's got another bonus, this guy said. Uh, and, he's, and he said, he, I guess Mo Dela said, yeah, what is it? He said, a rifle. He was a sharpshooter. You know, they kind of chuckled at that. And so that was that. He sent him out there. And, and this was about 53, I believe it was. So, you know, he went into the Desert Inn and got his apron, signed in, and went to work that next day. And, uh, you know, before Dalitz would come up and introduce himself, he wanted to see if the guy could deal okay. And he could deal fine. He was a fabulous dealer. And so uh, Dalitz introduces himself to him. And he says, my friend in Phoenix City said you, you were a pretty good sharpshooter. He said, oh, he's a yes, sir. I was in the Marines and I did this and did that. And he says, well, why don't you, you go out in the desert one afternoon and shoot a couple of soda cans or something? You know, kind of joking with him. And he says, yeah, I'd love to do that. Now, you got to remember, in 53, you can walk outside the desert in hotel. That's the desert. You know, you didn't have to walk, go 20 miles to find a place to shoot guns. You know, people did that in those days. So they went out in the desert, you know, maybe half a mile from the desert in, and they set up a, a quarter and he, he popped it, and then he says, let me put a dime up, and he popped that. He says, that's pretty good. Uh, he said, you're a pretty good shot. He said, uh, uh, he said, that might be a bonus in years to come. Uh, do you have any qualms about shooting somebody if they deserved it? <laughs> he said, well, he answered, well, if they deserved it, maybe. But he says, you know, I don't do, I have a couple of rules. He says, you know, I never did a kid, never did a woman. Uh, never heard a woman or a kid in my life, and I wouldn't do it, you know, to this day. Just wouldn't do it. Uh, what if you had to protect yourself? Uh, you know, basically, well, that's a different story. Just to go out and assassinate them, I wouldn't do that. So basically, you know, uh, that was that. So nothing ever came of it, but uh, he was promoted to a more of like a director in the hotel eventually and did special assignments for Mo Dalitz, uh doing errands, various things. And... Uh, a few years went by, and, and, and one day, uh, Modell was sent out to, to get some information, and uh, this gentleman came back, and he was told that Modellus was in the country club on the second floor in, in a meeting, and to go over there and, and bring, it to, bring it to him. So he goes to the, second, to the, the entrance of the second floor, and there's two guys kind of watching the gate, and uh, they wouldn't let him go up, and, and so they said, we'll go up and tell Mr. Dalitz you're here. They did, and Dalitz said, send him up. So he went up there, and uh, uh, Dalitz says, I want you to meet some people here. Uh, and uh, Dalitz opened the the doors of this little small boardroom, and uh, and Dalitz said to this group of guys, he said, this is uh, so-and-so. I just wanted you to see who he is and say hello, and we'll talk to you a little later. And he scooted this gentleman out. Well, this anonymous person said he looked in the room, and uh, at the at the uh, table, and he recognized a couple of faces. Now, this was uh, this, this was incredible to me. One was uh, Sam Giancana, the other one was Nick Savella, and the third one, which I thought pretty wild, was Lyndon Johnson, and he was wow. a vice vice president then. Now mm-hmm. you know the guy told me the story, and uh, and. Uh, that was that. So then a couple of days later, 
uh, Dalich calls the gentleman back up and he says, uh, how do you feel about that? He says, well, he says, you know, like I said, I'm not going to, I wouldn't shoot a woman and I wouldn't shoot a kid. And he says, oh, okay. And that was the end of it. Now, what's crazy about this is that I, I finished my interview with a gentleman and, um, I, I said, I would like to do another interview with you a couple of days later. And he let me do it again, and I taped it with his permission. And he never missed a beat. And then um, uh, it was incredible. And I, I searched my notes, and I looked at the, listened to the tape, and it was impe- impeccable. And then, just by chance, Mo Dalitz's daughter, uh, who's still around, she was in town. And I, I called her up, and I said, I'd like you to come over, and I want you to listen to this and meet this gentleman. And he, he met her, and in my office, he repeated the story. He never missed a beat. It was exactly the same, and she didn't, didn't you know, uh, take, was taken back. She wasn't upset. She just listened. And uh, so, you know, it was a really an incredible story. Now, I then went to the presidential library of Lyndon Johnson, and I looked up his di- daily diary, and he did go to the Desert Inn Hotel, and I believe he stayed in room 340. He also visited the Tropicana, which at that time was owned by, partially owned by Marcello, Carlos Marcello of Louisiana. He was one of the biggest investors there. And Roselli, Johnny Roselli, uh, who was hired by Robert Mayhew to kill Castro uh, with Giancana, uh, was also involved in the Tropicana. So, you know, who knows what Dalitz had in mind? So that's the question. But I thought I'd tell you the story, and I thought it was very interesting. So and then it brings, you know, the connection between Dalitz and Hoffa now are very, very close. It's extremely close. And so I always thought that this could have been something. It could have been nothing. But it's my inclination, I think, that uh, I believe what the gentleman told me. Uh, he's still alive. He's quite elderly. But... Um, I thought it would be remiss of me if I didn't include this in this book. And uh, that's where it is, uh, Don. Well, that's great. And uh, give us, because we we only have a few minutes left, and I want to give you time at the end to promote. Give us one more. Do you have one more quick story from the book that that is especially fascinating? I'll I'll give you one real quick one. uh, There's many great uh, stories in the book that are just funny and just a lot of fun, and there's a lot of detailed stuff that – you couldn't even repeat it. It took me 10 hours to repeat it to you. But it was a great story. You know, one day I went in to get my shoes shined in the men's room. And uh, I was in the Baccarat pit, took my jacket off, and got up on the little pedestal, and the guy shining my shoes. And in comes one of the shift managers in the 21 pit, uh, who used to be my boss. And it, then, after he comes in, here comes a host that was working for the casino that they didn't get along. These two guys didn't like each other. I mean, to the point they hated each other. So they're both washing their hands, and they're looking at each other in the mirror, kind of like triangulation, and I'm about five feet away on the stand, and one guy says to the other guy something smart, the other guy says something back smart, pretty soon they're pushing each other, one guy reaches in his pocket, pulls out a gun, and somebody yelled, gun, and he hit the other guy in the head, blood squirting all over the place, I'm trying to duck, the shoeshine guy left the, the rag on my foot, and, I'm, you know, and I can't do anything. Anyway, in came in the casino manager. They they took the guy away. They fired him, and that was that. And oh, for one incredible. year, 
Yeah. One year, the shift manager was mad at me because I didn't take the gun away. And by the way, can I get my website? Absolutely. Go, go ahead. Give, give, tell the folks where they can reach you and uh, promote anything you yeah. want to promote. Uh, the book can be purchased at trineday.com. That's T-R-I-N-E-D-A-Y.com. And uh, my website is Gino Munari, G-E-N-O-M-U-N-A-R-I.com. That's G-E-N-O-M-U-N-A-R-I.com. The book is Las Vegas Dunes, Hotel, Casino, and Country Club, The Mob, The Connections, The Story. Gino Minari, thank you very much. Next week on the show, special guest host, Ali Siadatan with Jonathan Kahn, author of Harbinger 2, The Return. I'm Don Jeffries. Good night. Good night.